Hi, welcome back to JaffeWoodwinds.com. Uh, today in our continuing Woodwind Legacy series of video interviews, uh, I'm going to be spending this hour with an old friend, colleague, uh, one of the greatest jazz tenor players in the world, uh, who's been active really for over 40 years now and producing so many great albums as a leader, as a sideman, also as an educator, uh, creating over seven books, some of which are directly behind me. Um, and we're going to get a little bit of insight into his life, his career, and um, how he approaches uh, the creative aspect of jazz improvisation. Uh, I'm pleased to spend this afternoon with my friend Walt Weisskopf. Walt, thank you for uh, taking the time to do this this afternoon, and uh, I hope it'll be worthwhile. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, great. And um, let's just jump right in and, and talk a little bit about your background, um, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school and, and how uh, you got into music. I grew up in Syracuse, New York, outside Syracuse. Where I, really, I was the big city. I was outside in uh, the idyllic suburbs. And I had a real good fortune to take advantage of a very good school music program, which, of course, at the time, I didn't really think much about it. That's just what it was. I was offered the opportunity to play an instrument in the fourth grade, which I did. I had played piano when I was five, but it just didn't take. I was just too immature and knucklehead, and I, I quit. My dad is a terrific pianist, uh, was and still is, and he offered me this opportunity, and I just didn't, it didn't work. So uh, by the time I, 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 guess, I, I just want to interject that you also have a brother who's a pretty good pianist, too. Yeah, he, he, well, I, ironically, uh, when I quit the piano, my dad turned to my brother and said, would you like piano lessons? And at three and a half years old, he said, yes, I would. So there you go. That kind of explains why uh, he's a great piano player and I'm not. Right. And Walt's brother, uh, younger brother, is Joel Weisskopf. Great, yeah, he's great jazz player. Terrific, terrific jazz player pianist and also an old colleague of as of course of yours of course yeah. but when I was in the fourth grade I was nine years old and I guess by that time I was a little bit more uh, able to concentrate for short periods of time and I played the clarinet that was my choice probably because my kids across the street also chose the clarinet and I did well and I wanted to uh, to keep going. And I guess it was just fairly natural. Uh, I had very, very good instruction at that age, particularly because our director at the time was really a, a terrific guy as far as taking the time to tailor the program to uh, who was in the program, which at the time he didn't have anything like uh the instrumentation for a standard jazz ensemble, but he would write charts just for us. And he did that. And even though I didn't play uh, the saxophone, I played the clarinet, I was able to participate and I, I just loved it. I was totally hooked and began to try and angle uh, my parents to get me a saxophone, which they finally decided to to relent in the eighth grade. And in the eighth grade, I began to play saxophone more in earnest and still play the clarinet, but I had terrific opportunities in uh, junior high and high school to, to participate in organized jazz ensemble. 
and high school, we had all the current charts that we heard on record by the bands that were performing Maynard Ferguson and Buddy Rich and Stan Kenton. Stan Kenton, they used to have a terrific company called Creative World. And uh, my band director at the time procured all these charts and we had all these professional level charts and I'm sure it made a mess of them, but it was really wonderful uh, experience for young folks like us to be able to look at those notes and, and try and understand what it took to really perform on that level. So that was, was really a uh, great preparation for me. Uh, I went to college at the Eastman School of Music, which was only 90 miles away from where I grew up. It seemed a natural fit, and it was a terrific program. Of course, I really had no interest in anything but jazz, but <laughs> I was very, very fortunate to have my immaturity tempered somewhat, and I had to be a classical saxophone major. And... In so doing, I really had to learn the instrument properly. Uh, I've, I've always said on hindsight that probably the pressure of the marketplace gradually uh, forced all these programs to kind of dumb down their primary instrumental uh, training and let people major in jazz when they really weren't ready for it, and which is what I would have done if I'd had the opportunity. But fortunately, I did not. Uh, had that opportunity. I had to be a classical major, but boy, I look back on that and feel very fortunate because I had to learn the instrument properly. And was, so Ray, I, was Ray Ricker your teacher there? At he was. He was. Yeah, and when I think about how young he was at that time, it's hysterical. He must have been about, I guess, in his early 30s when I was uh, his student in 1977, 78, 79. Right, but he had already, he was an experienced player. He had, or I, I know a little bit about Ray's background, that he, yeah. he had jo he had jobbing experience. And I think he even... Oh, sure, yeah. He, did, he even think, did he also go to France and study with Marcel Mule for a little bit of time? Um, I, you I might be right about that. I have that in the back of my you, head. You, you might be right about that. Uh, uh, you might be right. I should know that. Edit this part out. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, uh, but that's but, an interesting... Uh, interesting observations you've made about how uh, programs uh, have sort of segregated these uh, different studies of music, especially for saxophonists. And now it's your either or you're either a classical sax major or a, or a jazz saxophone major. But the yeah. idea is that you really have to study your instrument, as well as the music that whatever music that you are looking to you know, spend your life with. Uh, but your instrument has to be a part of that. And it's uh, sometimes neglected in some of the programs out there. I think it's sadly often been neglected, certainly in my experience teaching jazz majors. Right. We'll have to gently explain <laughs> to them that without mastery of your instruments, you cannot really pursue jazz playing. It's, too much to try and do at the same time. You have to center your energies. Uh, there has to be at least formative instrumental training. If it's going to be in conjunction with work on jazz, I suppose that could work, but it's pretty rare that a student is that focused that they can do both those things at once. Especially as undergraduates uh, and beginning college with all that that entails as a absolutely as an undergrad. Um, 
but I also found it fascinating once again um, uh, that the early instruction that you got in school was so important and and made such an impression on you. Uh, I, I'm trying to think back to a uh, an artist that I've interviewed in this series who didn't have that same experience where the school music programs were so vital and which makes it even clearer for us how much it's important to maintain those programs uh, if we're going to give people a chance at finding their talents no question you know uh, so eastman obviously is, a, is a, one of the top conservatories in this country and certainly renowned for its jazz programs and commercial programs and classical i mean it really covers a full gamut uh, of music and always has um and shortly after you graduated, or immediately, I mean, you you ended up uh, going to the Buddy Rich Band, uh, and you were quite young. I was about a year uh, intervening. I, I had it in my head, I guess, that I was going to just move to New York, which I did shortly after I finished school. I finished in the spring of 80, and by the fall of 80, I just moved down to, ended up in Brooklyn, New York. Really had zero idea what I was doing there, but I managed to find some places to play, some jam sessions. And uh, at the time, I didn't even own a tenor. I just showed up with my alto. And I learned in a hurry how far behind I was. But nothing like being in that situation to, to get you uh, progressing in a hurry. And so I did know how to practice and I did and I got the opportunity to join uh, the Buddy Rich Band the following spring after I moved right. and to this day I don't know how I hung on I really had so I mean, virtually no professional experience on, not on that level anyway but I had enough of an education to be able to hang on uh, and I, I guess at the time I was able to uh, to learn fast enough. Right. Well, I have two questions based on what you've said. First, uh, and I didn't realize this, you were you played alto sax throughout college. Uh, you had I did. Of course, at that time, you know, we didn't have uh, all the saxophones. We just would play um, if there was a need for a tenor, and the school had a tenor. We could use the school tenor. I see. I see. But I didn't get a tenor until I was in New York. And I got a tip, actually, that um, Ralph Lama, who was in that chair at the time, might want to move on. And um, I decided, geez, if this comes my way, I really want to be ready. So I went and I had, I bought a tenor. Um, and lo and behold, that was the tenor that took me onto the band. And I did play that instrument until I got off. And then I got a different horn. It wasn't the greatest instrument, but I guess it got me. It got me going. But 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 you you joined Buddy Rich's band with very limited experience as a tenor player, basically zero experience, literally that, zero experience. That, but you know that's. I mean, what comes to mind immediately is the situation with Gary Smolian, who was a great alto player, and I know him right. on Long Island as that. And he joined Woody's band and had to play baritone. <laughs> Isn't that, that's phenomenal, but uh, a great story in that vein too. But uh, what I do know about you, 
and what I wanted to bring out later in the interview, but I think it's pertinent now, is that you are a very conscientious person. You uh, are, uh, take care of business 100%. You're very uh, focused on what you're doing, and, and if there's a, t a timetable or something that has to be done, you always get it done. Uh, you're always prepared, you're always on time. So uh, those qualities, I think, which are essential, I think, for any professional musician, uh, but here, coming into a band, playing a chair that you're, you know, and an instrument that you're not as familiar with as, let's say, the alto was for those years in college, yet you took it upon yourself to use this time to learn and to delve into things and, and, and take care of business. And I, no doubt your uh, approach to uh, taking care of business and, and practicing and being responsible uh, was noticed, I'm sure, and, and led to you becoming the tenor player that you, you have become. Uh, I suppose, I suppose. I, it's funny, you know, when you have um, a certain aspect of your personality, you don't maybe recognize it as being a valuable thing. But I, I remember lamenting to uh, Roland Vasquez, one of the first guys I worked with in New York in the early 80s that I didn't feel that I was a good businessman. And he shot right back and he said, you're a good businessman because you show up on time, you're prepared, uh, you know, you're not high or drunk. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, I don't remember what he said exactly, but um, <laughs> yeah. he, actually you mentioned something else that I know you want to ask uh, me about later on, but has to do with ballad playing. And uh, Roland Vasquez was the first person who told me that I was a great ballad player. And, and that never really occurred to me. Uh, it just seemed to be uh, part of what you do in music. Um, but I think it is valuable to be able to step back from yourself and realize what you do have to offer. And I really do value my propensity for organization. I, I still to this day, I drive my wife crazy because I hate to be late. I can't stand to be late, even for a social occasion. It just drives me crazy. And I suppose that that started with uh, being on the Buddy Rich Band, where if you were late, the bus would just leave. So <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> yeah, that only happened to me one time. Uh, but uh, as you can see, it made an impression. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that leads me to the next question. Uh, you're a veteran of, of some of the better big bands uh, throughout the last, uh, at least the last half century, Buddy Rich Band, the Toshiko Tobacco Big Band, and now, and more recent years, the John Fetchak New York Big Band. Um, what did, you, what would you say, uh, in addition to learning about being responsible and being on time, did you feel was beneficial to you in playing big band, uh, in big bands and big band music for your career? I think the big thing, and again, it's not really that I understood this as I was coming up, but is to be able to subordinate, which is so key and important when you are working for somebody else and really even working for yourself is to understand what role your sound has in the section. And when I was in college, I was playing lead alto in whatever, I suppose it was the third, uh, third band at the time. And I, I think I was subbing because I was still a freshman and I was just having a ball and Ray Ricker 
who was in front of me, he said, Walt, you cannot phrase like that. It's just way, way out of proportion. And I got this lesson um, from different people at different times. Lawrence Feldman also, I mean, by that time, of course, I was uh, a colleague of Lawrence's, but uh, we would uh, commiserate about how certain of our colleagues did not understand that uh, to over-inflect really is not good business. It's just not appropriate. And I think I did learn that at a fairly young age so that when you're playing in a section, you cannot elevate your own interpretation or ego uh, beyond a, a real baseline. You, you are part of a team and nobody's really interested in your concept. You are just supposed to play the part. Uh, and I sat next to a lot of, I mean, you included, I mean, obviously people who are way, way far ahead of me, certainly uh, on other instruments, particularly the flute. And that was big education for me is that the primary objective when you're working for somebody else is um, to play when called upon to play. So if there's a beat of rest and a dotted half note, nobody really cares if it's a beautiful sound, if it's late on two, their job is to play the note in relative good intonation with a relatively good sound, uh, clear and concise. That's really all it is. And it, I think it took me uh, a little bit of time on a professional level to, to get that. But I had a lot of good formative education, uh, particularly on the, on the Buddy Rich Band about what it was to subordinate. Very true. And, and, and those comments that you made uh, with regard to your big band experience certainly transfer over to any music and any type of ensemble. Uh, Absolutely. Playing in a 80-piece orchestra, a 16-piece big band, or a five-piece combo. I mean, there's, there's always that uh, where you're part of the group, you're a solo, you're back into the group. Uh, you may not have solos in every tune. In a big band, you might have one solo a night, uh, and, you know, and, and, or, or maybe not even one. But you are part of the group, and and uh, you know, yeah, I, you can indulge yourself. I used to have a ball playing with Frank Sinatra because the parts were so much fun to play. But once I understood what the job is, the job is to use your skill and use the sound that you have to enhance the product, not to be heard over the collective sound of the ensemble. You're supposed to enhance the ensemble. And I really grew to love that part of it. The other thing, being a soloist, that's a particular facet, a particular skill that fortunately I was able to develop. But even when I'm leading my own band, I think a lot about tipping over into overplaying and overinflecting. And I think I thought at this stage, I can usually edit myself uh, just because I have so much experience doing it. 
But if I hear myself back and uh, I've over-inflected, uh, usually ends up being out of tune, uh, and I don't, I don't want to use it. I mean, this happens. We're all human. But uh, there's a certain tolerance for uh, intonation. And inflection is the enemy of intonation. <laughs> got to be very careful when you when you uh, yeah. get into that. I, you know, for, for a lot of different players, uh, they didn't have the opportunities that we had growing up uh, learning how to play uh, in, in, in tune properly. Uh, but we certainly came up at the right time as far as having the experience playing alongside other other uh, sidemen, other colleagues. Uh, and I, I learned so much from playing with uh, with my colleagues, you know, playing with guys like you, Chuck Wilson, uh, people who have had a lot of section experience. Yeah. So I'm definitely a product of the big bands. I mean, even, even now uh, when I play with Celia Dan, I, I – I take that experience directly from playing with big bands uh, into enhancing the section. Interesting, and, and that's in a, in a four or five piece. Horn. Yeah, four four horns. Oh, yeah, but we're all we're all in the same school right. of understanding that nobody's really interested in any of the horn players back there. The horn players are there to create a sound right. uniformly. Right. Right. All right, so now, you know, you joined Buddy Rich roughly around twenty-one or so. Twenty-one uh, years old. And and how and how many years did you hang with Buddy Rich? Two years. Two years. Bravo! <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's an achievement. Uh, not I have a lot of fun. Not memory. everybody can be Steve Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> no one would want to be. <laughs> this, yeah. It was a you know it was a pretty high stress job, but I knew when it was time to move on. I really wanted to proved to myself that I could sustain myself in New York. As a matter of fact, right after I got off, I had an opportunity to join the Woody Herman Band. And maybe I should have taken uh, them up on that. But at that time, I I wanted to stay put and, and see uh, how I was going to stay in New York. Right. Well, how, how when you got back to town, uh, how did you survive at that point? How did you start building the career that you had in New York? Well, essentially, I didn't. I uh, took a day job. I worked during the day for for many years, and I had to juggle that with uh, oftentimes gigs at night, uh, oftentimes not getting really any practicing done. Uh, but I needed money, and that's what I did. Unfortunately, I had enough skill set to survive. Uh, doing uh, office work and whatever I was called upon to do, you know, put on a suit and tie at that time. They still wore suits and ties. Yeah, yeah. And I was able to uh, to survive. And I mean, it felt good to use whatever resourcefulness I, I had. But I got frustrated, obviously, after several years. I needed to find a way. Uh, luckily, at that point, I was able to transition into, um, I had enough gigs and various and sundry stuff to sustain myself. But it wasn't until, um, I mean, I joined the Toshiko Akiyoshi Blue Tobacco Band when I was 23. But even though we had great opportunities, we did substantial amount of work. I mean, it was not a living. Right. So I still, when I was uh, idle, I had to work during the day. Right. 
Right. So, uh, and I think this is important for uh, certainly the younger folks listening in, uh, because coming out of college today, uh, especially now in pandemic times and the music business is uh, slow to recover, um, and it will take a while to recover. But even in normal times, coming out of college, uh, you know, with the way the industry has changed over the last 30 years or so uh, dramatically, uh, it's hard to just jump into uh, earning enough money, having enough gigs to survive and, 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 and really, you know, uh, pay for yourself. And so uh, I think that's a great example that even 40 years ago, let's say, uh, you took it upon yourself to make sure you earned enough money to put a roof over your head and food and, and take care of the basic necessities at the same time of, as looking for gigs that... Um, you know, because you're not going to be getting a hundred thousand dollar a year gig coming right out of school does not <laughs> mean sure. that the world is over and that your schooling was for nothing. That it takes time for everyone. Um, yeah, being an art, artist obviously is not the average career, but uh, ironically, I think that in more and more career paths and walks of life, people do have to learn how to be creative and not rely on just a conventional job, let's say, uh, but to uh, people are working more as, uh, you know, for themselves, so working from home. So for me, that was just part of the fabric of what I had to do. I, I didn't really, I didn't stop doing that until uh, probably I was 26 or 27, maybe even 28 years old, I still had a couple of connections um, that I was able to tap into. If I needed money, I could go to work. Um, but at a certain point, obviously, I just had to cut that cord. It wasn't like I necessarily was ready to do it, but I uh, certainly, I, I was ready to do it uh, emotionally, but financially, it was a different story. So sure. not that it's easy, but, you know, being an artist is not supposed to be easy. If you're right. looking well, for that, you're not in the wrong line of work. Right. Uh, one of the things about uh, your background, which I know um, that has allowed you allowed you to survive in New York for as many years and, uh, you know, and make some uh, good uh, bread with benefits is that you worked a good amount of commercial gigs for a number of years. Uh, I certainly did. I, and, I mean, to be ready to do that, I was so mature when I was first in New York. I had no idea how to play a job like that. I mean, I'm right. really did. Uh, it took me years before I understood how to play a Broadway show. Right. But uh, I had a you, lot had, of you, had, you had a very good clarinet background, having had clarinet. That was fortunate. And uh, saxophone at Eastman. Uh, I know you're a terrific sight reader. Uh, and we talked about the preparation. So um, the idea of having other instruments besides your primary uh, instrument, especially as a jazz artist, uh, proved very helpful for you in, in, in prolonging your uh, stay in New York and your career and allowing you to develop so that you had the time to work on your jazz uh, in the off hours as well. Uh, well, it certainly, it certainly was an ace in the hole for me. And again, I didn't plan it that way, but... Uh, playing the clarinet at that level, I didn't realize what an asset that was until I was in that line of work and saw other uh, primary saxophone players trying to play the clarinet and realized how difficult it was to make that switch. I could certainly relate because for me, the flute was was my 
was the, the tough thing for me to, to grow into. Uh, I mean, I eventually became a capable flute player, but it certainly was my weakest uh, double. But um, it's, it's the skill on the instrument, but I also didn't understand how to properly respect that kind of work until I grew to be older. Right. Uh, and just as an aside, uh, you were more than just capable on the clarinet. We did a show together, <clears throat> I think it was the late 90s, somewhere called Fosse, in which you ended up playing the Benny Goodman solo on stage for about a year or so. Uh, under, more than a year. <laughs> yeah, was, that, was, that was a very stressful thing to and go Until I had an nervous breakdown. <laughs> exactly. Well, at the end of the show, after having played the pit for two plus hours, they'd go up on stage and play the, the entire Benny Sing 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 solo by memory, ending up on a triple high B on clarinet. That is not something anyone would want to do, let alone uh, you know, a doubler and someone who still was creating jazz in the off hours so i mean it it obviously did pay a great deal of um it did i i value that skill a lot yeah and 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 those are the things that uh get your name around in different circles uh there's a circle of dealing with club owners and promoters for jazz and there's a circle of dealing with contractors and commercial music and uh, personnel managers and classical music whatever it is but uh that one can be flexible and uh, play numerous styles of music, even on numerous instruments, is a win-win. Um, so again, uh, for the many jazz sax players I know that'll be watching this, um, it's not a bad thing to um, play other instruments. Look, we know Eddie Daniels was, is a great jazz clarinetist, but his first instrument was saxophone. And, and you know, anyone who remembers Eddie from playing with Thad Mel knows how great he was. Phil Woods was a clarinet major at Juilliard and um, played beautiful jazz clarinet, Gary Foster. And believe it or not, uh, as we now know more from the uh, Michael Brecker biography that came out recently, but I remember Randy telling me Michael's first woodwind was clarinet, which he didn't really like. But yeah. I'm still convinced that having played that for a year or two as a young fellow, the focus uh, and getting a sound, the control of the fingers, and uh, m must have had some positive uh, relation to uh, Mike's uh, phenomenal, totally phenomenal. You, you, can, you can almost, you can almost tell a saxophone player who's had clarinet background just from the way they blow the instrument. Yes, and also well, you have to the, moderate that. You have to minimal adjust. finger motion. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember, I remember being at a club once. Uh, with Phil Woods watching him play in the eighties. And it was just, I happened to get the first table right up close and I could, I could hardly see his fingers moving. They were, it, I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. And of course he also carried a cigarette in between the <laughs> third and fourth <laughs> fingers while he was doing it just to rub it in. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, yeah, I think there is something there. So, um, on many levels, it's, I think, uh, helpful if one is, looks at it that way to be able to play additional instruments especially that have a cross relationship uh with the saxophone um, so i had now you're in new york you're earning a living you're surviving uh you're playing other instruments you're doing other gigs how did your solo career take off what was the impetus for that and the opportunities that presented themselves to allow you to build your solo career well that was all, always my my primary goal, even if I didn't understand exactly what it was I was doing, but 
from my early 20s, I was writing music for myself to play. And I got my first real opportunity to record as a leader when I was 29 for a very small label. And at that time, I really wasn't even up to playing a Broadway show on a professional level. That was something that I was, I was trying to do these. I was trying to grow in these different fields kind of uh, in tandem, which is a difficult thing to do, obviously. But I recorded as a leader uh, for the first time in 1989, or at least it came out in 89, maybe it was 88. Um, at that time, uh, I also had chosen to go back to uh, get a master's degree on the clarinet because I felt that I really wasn't doing enough um, as a musician professionally. I, I decided that I should do something constructive. And um, all that stuff kind of was happening at the same time. So I went to, uh, to Queens College and did a master's degree on clarinet right around that time was when I got the opportunity to record as a leader on the saxophone. So I was wearing some different hats, certainly. Yes. And I, I didn't really, I mean, I was, I was hanging in there, you know, but I did not really uh, get steady uh, commercial work uh, playing Broadway shows until several years after that. Right. Right. Well, but again, here, your organizational abilities come into uh, four here, uh, going for a, a master's at Queens on clarinet, doing jazz gigs, having your first solo project, um, you know, getting uh, accustomed to what commercial requ gig requirements are, all of that coming together uh, at once. Uh, you, one can't do that if one doesn't know how to really organize themselves and, and have a clear focus. You know, I think I was able to produce on a certain level the work that I did as a graduate student was really in a lot of ways kind of lazy work because I really just wanted to play. I did not want to write papers. I did not <laughs> want to study music history. But I was able to play. That's what I was good at. And on the strength of my playing, I managed to uh, sneak through and get this degree, but I probably wasn't perfectly suited for that. But <laughs> it certainly, it really helped me because I had enough background on the clarinet and I really enjoyed that process of playing real chamber music and real orchestral music on more of a level. And, and that propelled me uh, to a certain level of... Uh, being able to gravitate toward professional work in New York City because I was progressing on the clarinet. Uh, probably, I'm sure I obviously I would not have been able to do that unless I had that background. Right, right. Uh, and just on a technical level, uh, and let's just use the clarinet because it was the instrument that we you're talking about now. How did that translate? We and we referenced this a few minutes ago. How did it translate to actually helping your saxophone playing? Uh, can, can you make that uh, um, connection? I, I think that uh, the clarinet technically, it was such a hard thing to step back, but I think technically it's very difficult. Uh, when that's all you know, it didn't really seem that way, but technically speaking, it's a harder instrument to play. 
it's some basic technical things that haven't changed on a clarinet. On the clarinet, you have to cover the holes. So that does make you um, inherently kind of more efficient as far as how your fingers work. I think that saxophone players who don't have clarinet background can fall into a habit of slapping the keys only because it's technically possible to do. Uh, That really can wear thin especially if you want to progress to a level of uh, higher competence that really, um, you know, your, your hands can't handle all that kind of motion. Uh, it's like a pianist who doesn't have good technique. You can have all the musicality if you want, but, you know, your body is the machine that has to sustain all that stuff. And the older you get, the harder it gets. You've got to be as efficient as you possibly can be. And I know that playing the clarinet without understanding it it's just to be able to play it you have to be efficient in the way that you move your hands so i know that that really helped me right Uh, you know the way you blow the instrument of course is is big too and for me uh realizing that even though the clarinet and the saxophone are both single reed instruments they're almost diametrically opposed as the way you put air into the instrument and if you don't understand that, you end up playing the saxophone uh, in a way that's kind of stiff and won't sound um, idiomatic. A saxophone player who's in the walks of life that with the, where, where we walked has to be able to play in a, in a quote, classical vein on the saxophone uh, and also in a, in a way that doesn't sound so classical. Um, and it, it, you know, the history of the saxophone is it's pretty interesting when you study the virtuosos that came way before us, like the guys in the Whiteman band, for instance. I mean, those guys weren't thinking about you know jazz versus classical; they were just playing the instrument. Right. And it wasn't really until uh, decades later, and this is where I think that conceptually people get very confused and. You know, this gets back to the conversation that uh, we used to have with Lawrence Feldman, who's one of the, you know, maybe the preeminent doubler of our generation. When he learned that um, if you try and sound too jazzy, uh, it's really, there's no such thing as that. It's just basically inappropriate. So uh, we've all heard examples of people who try and and uh, and sound um, sound jazzy, but it's it's incorrect. And, and when you play the saxophone, if you're blowing into the saxophone like you would blow into a clarinet, it's literally incorrect. So, um, I mean, it's overly simplistic, but the clarinet is basically straight up and down and the saxophone is almost perpendicular. So you can look at it that way. I think it helps to, to have a, even if it's not a perfect dichotomy, but uh, it's certainly better to understand it that way than to try and approach both those the saxophone mouthpiece and clarinet mouthpiece in the same way because that just literally is incorrect doesn't work yeah there the similarities and the differences are needed to be understood uh, physically as well as mentally and uh the uh idea uh for instance we hear this a lot when you see classical people who are trained in concert saxophone classical saxophone try to play in a jazz idiom um, with who don't have the background 
or a clarinet player in an orchestra suddenly picks up and he has to play the saxophone, even in a classical scenario where they might have to move over and play a bolero or a pictures yeah. at an exhibition, and and it'll and it sounds not like a saxophone. It yeah, the, I mean the classic, the the typical thing is to overcompensate, and that's where you get into the problem of sounding literally just incorrect or inappropriate. Right. right. So the the saxophone. Uh, has evolved in such a way that uh, it is, there are these different stylistic, um, there are there are different styles of saxophone playing, really, and then there are in, in clarinet playing too. Yes. So I guess until we understand uh, how those, where they intersect and where they uh, diverge, it's yes. pretty hard to, uh, to understand where to fit in. Right. Um Let's go back to a, a, another subject that you referenced uh, and that is certainly important uh, because now you have 20 CDs or 20, 20 albums as a leader. Uh, but And a great deal of the material on all these albums are originals. That, and so uh, as a composer and you, a, a arranger, how did, how did you evolve in that? Did you study... Uh, composition, jazz arranging at Eastman, did you, how did you get more into that as your solo career emerged? I always loved the idea of writing music. Even when I was a kid, I would write out music for myself to play on the piano. I didn't really understand chord changes until I got to college. I didn't understand, um, I, I never studied composition in that way. I certainly studied arranging, but uh, arranging when I was in school was kind of based on big band arranging, which was excellent information for me, but I never have had a knack for that. I began to compose just kind of for myself in a, in a quartet setting. And, uh, and that, that did work. I, was again i think it comes back to my propensity for organization i kind of count myself um as a uh, kind of a junior ocd guy and that uh <laughs> you know i i have a very particular um i don't want to say uh obsession but maybe obsessions is okay about parts being clear and easy to read i don't think that people understand uh, my my band often pokes fun of me. I don't show me parts that aren't taped together. <laughs> if the part's not taped together, they're just asking for trouble because you know one of the pages is going to fall off and yes. you're going to get lost. So I mean, what good is it? I mean, how good is the material if you can't read it? So yes, the way the part is copied to me. I don't want to see a part where the bad page turned. I want my sidemen to have absolutely no issues with being able to see what's on the page and be able to play it immediately. And you learn uh, in our profession, when you see a bad part, immediately it's a red flag. You know, who, was, who copied this part? It's something that I think that a lot of people don't get when I'm... Um, teaching when I'm consulted. If a musician is not using notation software, I just don't understand it. That's like not having a telephone. Uh, you know, why would you um, attempt <clears throat> to be in a certain uh, walk of life without the 
the tools. So even though we grew up when you had to write with pencil and paper, you gotta you gotta be able to adapt. So uh, when I was in my early twenties, of course, I was very kind of uh, meticulous about copying parts, which of course for years I did with uh, with uh, pen and paper. Um, when notation software came along, I was all over it. I wanted that, and uh, I consider that a huge resource. But I was always, um, I, I think intuitively, I knew that, uh, I mean, I'll say this in, in present day as well, for someone like me to play a standard or a jazz tune, I don't really see it. It's much more typical when you think about all the players we looked up to, they all have written their own music to perform. You can't think of very many players who have made a mark that haven't written their own music, even if they're not known as composers. Yeah, I think the so, only one I think the only one that comes immediately to mind is Stan Getz. Stan Getz is unusual. That's the example I always give. He's obviously an unusual genius. Yes. Uh, you know, of course, there are um, other examples, but by and large, even musicians that we don't particularly think of as jazz composers, they all wrote their own music. And if they played another tune or a standard, it was in a particular way. And of course, arranging is writing. So I was always interested in writing for, because I wanted to perform in that context. I wanted to perform in a, as a leader in a jazz quartet. And later, of course, I wrote for uh, some other, you know, five, six, eight, nine horns, and kind of brought my, uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, multi-experience um, playing other instruments and understanding what sounds good on other instruments. But I never really got way into the whole uh, large ensemble thing. For me, it was all about writing for myself as a leader. Or I think it would be a good time now to... Uh, uh have the audience uh, hear you playing in context in a club one of your original tunes coat of arms which was recorded a few years ago at smalls uh pre-pandemic and uh just a couple of minutes and I, I i think everyone will get a kick out of this so this is walt's tune coat of arms at uh, smalls club in new york city in the village uh, i think it's 2019 i, I believe it's march of 19. March, okay all right here we here we go Thank <laughs> you. 
let's get back to now uh, more recent times. Uh, you established yourself in New York. You were starting to record as a soloist, leader, working shows and commercial gigs. And then uh, early in the millennium, you, I believe it's right around the millennium is when you got the call for Steely Dan. Uh, it's certainly been over 20 years, right? I think it's 20 years this year that I okay. made the uh, their record, Everything Must Go. Right. So in 2002, they were working on Everything Must Go. Right. And I was called in to do, uh, to do some horn section work. Right. Which was terrific. I was thrilled. And it never really at that time occurred to me that uh, maybe they were checking me out, possibly for future reference. And later on in the year, I had the opportunity to go in and play on that title tune as kind of a tenor feature. don't know that both Donald Fagan and Walter Becker are huge jazz fans. I mean, they were going in to see, uh, you know, Roland Kirk play at the Vanguard when, you know, we were yeah. learning how to play the clarinet in the fourth grade. So, right. I mean, they're both huge, huge, uh, I mean, real educated jazz fans. And have always used some of the greatest saxophone players on the recordings. For, I mean, Phil Woods, Tom Scott, Pete Chrisley. Chris Potter. I mean, on and on, uh, the, the list of Dwayne Shorter. I mean, the list of great uh, saxophone players who've uh, uh, been featured with them over the years. Uh, yeah, and great musicians. I mean, for, for them, I mean, knowing them as, well, of course, Walter passed in 2017, but um, after working with them, I look back on when they had those guys on their records, and for them, it was, they were like kids in the candy store uh let's let's call phil woods i mean this is gonna be great <laughs> for, for for them these are people that they knew um all these all these players were people that they had looked up to to me and marvin stan was about 10 years older than those guys were and right. donald was just thrilled to have marvin stan on uh on his solo records just because he looked up to him when he was a kid. Sure. Well, what a great story and, and how fortunate for so many jazz players that uh, artists, pop artists uh, uh, and composers of that stature uh, held jazz artists in that. Uh, yeah, they're, I, you're, they're, they're unique in that sense. A yes. lot of uh, pop musicians don't really get jazz and uh, they certainly did, which I think you can use maybe just as argue for vindication that um, that that kind of substance really does stand the test of time. That's one reason I am convinced that that music has endured and will continue to endure because it's substantive. 
Right. Now, yet, it, it definitely has different rhythmic grooves than one is accustomed to in, in typical uh, or even atypical jazz settings. Um, yes. So how did you as a jazz artist uh, adapt to coming into playing this music and playing in the horn section? Were you someone who listened to a lot of this music or a lot of pop music, R&B music prior? No, I did not. When I was in high school, I knew those. I knew the name Silly Dan. Of course, I knew that uh, Asia was a big record when I, when I was in college. Right. But I was so focused on jazz, I never saw myself as a sideman in that context. So I didn't really, I didn't struggle from the standpoint of uh, adaptation only because. I think that their model was perfect for someone like me. I had all the experience as far as playing in the section. So for me, that was natural. And I suppose on hindsight that when they worked with me uh, playing in a section and saw that I had, you know, zero uh, issue, I wasn't trying to have my sound heard above others uh, in the section. Uh, that's, I mean, that's 90% of the job is playing the section parts. Uh, but yet that uh, I was, I was a jazz player. Uh, that was um, the, the big thing for me playing with those guys. When I hear myself on, you know, early live recordings, is playing too many notes because in large venues, it does not get across. It's not like the clip you played, uh, Coat of right. Arms. <laughs> Notes like that in a big arena are just like, you're never going to hear it. Right. So through the years, I gradually learned how to kind of moderate and modify my playing, which I think for me also, that's been a very good thing because I, I do kind of tend uh, toward the eighth note. I mean, that's kind of the building block uh, in jazz. But while it's necessary and great to have those skills, when you're playing uh, more in a pop vein, you got to adapt, really play melodically and use your skills and your musicality to, to make that transition, which is what I think I've learned how to do. And I still, you know, try and get better at it. Great, great advice, Walt, um, and, and something I think um, musicians, as they get older, find out in some way, or way, shape, or form. Uh, but also interesting about mentioning how you uh, might cater your playing, especially solo playing, depending on the venue you're in, the size of the venue, the not only the acoustics, but just the sheer size. I mean, instead of playing for a club where you might have 50 or 100 people uh, or so forth, now you're playing for 20,000. Uh, 30,000 people. That's a different ball game. And uh, that's. Yeah, I still think about that. I think you really, if you're tone deaf, as it were, to that kind of. I was just, I was just in Europe. And um, the last concert we played on tour, I could tell that the audience was older folks. Um, and I, I just knew. I said, we got to adjust. Our, our program and so a couple different tunes you know maybe not quite as much uh, you know got to kind of break them into the fast tempos rather than just kind of hit them with it uh, all at once and you got to be sensitive to that kind of thing 
Yeah. I learned that from all the great leaders when I worked with Buddy Rich. If he didn't feel he had the crowd, he wasn't happy. Um, Donald Fagan, too. I mean, if he feels like the the crowd is not with him, he he gets it. He knows. He uh, He's very sensitive to that. And, I mean, I've learned, obviously, you know, you're not in a vacuum. You're supposed to be entertaining. People are supposed to be having fun, whether it's jazz in a club or uh, a big pop band in an arena. People are supposed to be entertained. Right. Great point. Um, let's diverge just a little bit and talk about your practice routine, because I want to talk about your books uh, and your uh, uh work in the masterclass series that we're going to talk about in a little while but uh let's start that off with how you approach practicing because i think that will naturally lead to uh, these other discussions sure well practicing for me at this stage of my life is different than uh, than it was i think virtually all the books that i wrote i never set out to write books i just decided that again this might this might harken back to my kind of efficiency complex when I was working on a certain technique or a certain approach, I decided maybe intuitively I should should write this stuff down. This might come in handy at some point. And when I was working on coal train changes in my 20s, I began to write that stuff down. Coal train. But fortunately, my, my uh, friend and uh, then colleague, uh, previous my, my teacher, Ray Ricker, was kind enough to uh, mentor me and partner me, and we partnered on those those two books. And actually, when I decided that I wanted to write uh, Interdiagnostic Improvisation, which was the third book that I wrote, he cut me loose. He said, I think it's time you do this on your own. And he was exactly right, because the substance was all mine. And at that point, he had given me what he could of his skill in laying out, um, organizing, and presenting material. And for me, that was exactly what I needed. I needed to do that on my own. A lot of that had to do with not just the material, but how to get a computer and how to uh, learn notation software. And that was all part of the process. Right. So... Uh, I, Really, without exception, all the stuff that I have written down that's now in the form of a book is all stuff that I practiced myself and was my way of, of uh, organizing my practice. And in, in no, knowing a number of your books and, and um, uh, deciphering them, it's very clear that your knowledge of theory <clears throat> not only jazz theory, but theory in general is quite extensive. And that... Um, I fooled you again. <laughs> well, uh, if you I was a terrible student. When way I was in more college, advanced than I am. <laughs> I, I, I learned, actually, very gradually. Uh, it's a good thing that I had a, a college education because I was a very reluctant student. But theory is there for a reason. It's because it helps us understand that there's a reason why things sound good in the context of the Western music 12-note system. No, no question. Things, and, and, things and that, that are theoretically sound, sound good. Right. And and uh, 
in in recent educational endeavors that you're involved with uh, with a wonderful online series that we're going to talk about called mymusicmasterclass.com uh, you you spend time really this explaining how to apply theory scales intervals uh, to evolving a maybe a little more personal different un a unique way of playing yet one that's grounded in uh, the harmonic and melodic aspects uh, of, of a tune. Um, so why don't we just jump to that now. Uh, this is a little uh, promo clip for Walt's uh, Masterclass series that's presented on uh, mymusicmasterclass.com, a wonderful website which we'll talk about after the clip. And the tune that Walt is uh, dis uh, discussing in this is, what is this thing called love? So. MyMusicMasterClass.com with Walt Weisskopf on what is this thing called love. Absolute great tunes by Cole Porter called What Is This Thing Called Love? The first four bars of each A section begin with a minor 2-5 that tonicizes the minor 4 chord, which is unusual. And maybe that's part of the reason that the tune holds so much interest for us as jazz players. It works out very neatly that the minor 4 chord, if we think of melodic minor... you consider the sixth mode of that scale, that's our scale on our mode for the two chord D half diminished of the tune. G7 is often notated with a sharp five because of the melody note. That note becomes the ninth of the tritone substitution D flat nine. I wrote a contrafact in concert B flat. So, Walt, you referenced that you just came off the road. Let's talk about your latest CD, uh, Introspection, and uh, the group you're doing, and uh, a little about it. I also want to just let the audience know that the music they heard right up at the very front end before our interview began, and the music they're going to be hearing at the very end of our interview is from that CD. Yeah, it was a very gratifying project because the first half we recorded uh, in January, February of 2020, right before the pandemic. 
Matter of fact, I had barely made it home before they closed the borders. And so we had six tunes, which were released that spring. But the intention was to record the next half of the record when we toured the next year, which, of course, didn't happen. So that brings me to my whole other pandemic project, which was how to record myself at home, which uh, lots of other of our colleagues have been doing for years, particularly in the L.A. studio world you used to get paid extra for recording at home and now everyone expects you to do it so i had other friends who been doing this i always shunned it i never wanted to bother i just figured this is going to take away from my practice time i don't i know it's a black hole but at the same time uh i had a very good friend i have a very good friend terrific uh colleague mike smith who's been doing this he was way ahead of the curve he's had a studio in his house for 25 years and every time i talked to him he would ask me you know why aren't you doing this and i finally realized i have no answer because i've got nothing else to do so why not try and long story short i hired a couple students to help me i never met these guys face to face but they've certainly given me a lot of uh, a lot of help and I learned enough to be able to uh, execute the second half of this record uh, remotely. So I had to lay everything out and structure um, work tracks that I played along with and then send that to my colleagues in Europe. And they went in and recorded their parts, sent it back to me. And then I recorded my stuff uh, over again. Um, another dimension of that project is... I dug out my flutes and my clarinets again because uh, I hadn't played those since I moved to Virginia, really. So I decided that I wanted to add that dimension to this particular project, which was a lot of fun. So uh, it was gratifying that it all came together. So the second half of that record is uh, uh, a product of this remote, virtual, new recording situation. Yeah, so it was recorded in three different locations. Yeah, new world. And uh, and you just toured with this group, uh, I, yes. I, I assume, with this music. Uh, we, we've been playing this music for a couple of years. Actually, what we played mostly this uh, past tour was stuff that we recorded this time around. So uh, it's always, you know, by the time we go on the road, I'm, I'm looking toward the next project. So I'm, right. I'm editing now and uh, working on sending to uh, terrific engineer for mixing and mastering stuff that we recorded in uh, Cologne in uh, January. Well, given what you talked about, I mean, you, you're you, where you might have started recording your solo projects in 1988, 89. We're talking roughly 32, 33 years and you have 20 CDs as a leader. That's that's really quite something. Uh, so you're always looking ahead, it seems, and always, uh, you know, trying to stay on top of things in that way to get your latest products out uh that, yeah i guess i'm always i'm always thinking about uh how do i how do i progress it's 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 not really as ivory tower as as I, as you think it's more about this is what i love to do and if i'm going to keep my band interested i cannot just keep playing the same 10 tunes night after night not to mention the market doesn't tolerate that you have to have the material right so it's basically just this is the job this is what i do and 
my job is to produce. And part of my job is to write material for myself to play. So it's always about, as a matter of fact, I wrote two tunes on the train in uh, Germany because I realized that uh, in order to have enough for a, an album, um, I had a couple ideas where I, I brought them over and it just didn't work. And I had to really punt. Um, and it's amazing what a deadline will do for, uh, for your goal of having to produce. But I, I was able to do it. And I always keep a log of stuff that's maybe in progress on my computer. And I was able to uh, uh, come up with enough stuff to, to record. Great. Um, in wrapping up our discussion, I thought it might be good to look back a little bit on uh, who were your musical heroes? Who did you, did you look to uh, as you were growing up and who you still look to? Uh, obviously, we know John Coltrane is a huge influence in your playing. And uh, uh, But in addition to Train, can you talk about you know those heroes? And not only if, if jazz, if it's in other areas as well. Sure. Well, I grew up listening to classical music because my father was a classical pianist and he didn't have any idea about jazz, but he played at a pretty high level. I heard Chopin growing up and uh, he also played uh, Broadway show tunes, you know, never by ear, but he was a good sight reader. So I had that background. Um, jazz wise, I you mentioned this earlier, I had really good teachers and it wasn't just saxophone players that I admired. I loved Miles Davis at a young age. Didn't really understand what it was that I was hearing, but it wasn't just that I loved him as a trumpet player. I loved the bands that he had. And little by little, I realized that it wasn't just this one, you know, quintet with George Coleman and Herbie Hancock and um, Tony Williams and Ron Carter. That's the first quartet that I quintet that I got to know. Uh, but of course I, I learned about uh, Wayne Shorter at a relatively young age. And I loved Keith Jarrett at a young age. I mean, I ended up with this record belonging. I don't even know how I, I chose it because the cover was attractive to me and I didn't un understand that it was one of the most important records really in our, in our world uh, until some some years later, that was a big influence for me. Stan Guest was a huge influence for me. Dexter Gordon was a huge influence. Charlie Parker, obviously, I transcribed Charlie Parker solos when I was, uh, you know, 13, 14 years old without even understanding what the chord changes were. I would just play it back and, you know, over and over again and, and write the notes down. So, uh, and, you know, and, the, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but transcription was. Uh, always a part of your uh, learning process at 13 Absolutely. or 14, you were doing it. Did any, I mean, you just did this on your own as, as something you felt you wanted to figure out. Yeah. I think I, I'm not even sure I understood that word at that time. I just knew that I want to play these notes. I, I, I got to play them and I, I can't memorize them. I need to write them down little by little. And that's what I did. So right. I didn't understand the harmony at the time. Uh, I didn't understand that he was playing, you know, root third, fifth, seventh, maybe to a certain extent I, I did, but I was really kind of working in a vacuum a lot. But uh, in addition, obviously to the 
um, influence the saxophone players. I grew to love uh, beautiful arrangements and my, my formative, I ended up with all those CTI recordings that Don Sebesky arranged. And that's one of my big influences. You know, later on, I learned about Duke Pearson and what a huge uh, resource all his work and composing and arranging was, what a contribution he made. And um, obviously Gil Levin's huge influence so I guess I had these uh, in tandem, uh, wanting to get better as a saxophone player. And I also did have a, a real uh, interest in um, a, a beautiful setting, you know, how to uh, compose and arrange. And uh, what if you had a Desert Island list of uh, recordings to take with you, what, what would be, some of them be at the top of your list? <laughs> That's a good question. As a matter of fact, um, I, I thought about this just recently because my friend and colleague Amy Shook asked me to recommend examples of jazz records with two or more horns because she wanted to work on that for her own, uh, you know, her own growth, which you got to admire somebody who's at her level. Uh, and I did think about. I mean, there's infinite examples, but uh, yeah, there's some great records. I grew up with uh, Mode for Joe. I discovered that record and, and that just blew my mind. So records that are um, uh, ready for Freddie. I mean, to me, that was a hugely formative record. A great example of a couple, let's see, the three horns on that record, but how different a medium that is from a quartet. So for me, that was uh, huge, hugely influential. Um, other records that uh, later on, I was introduced to um, Idle Moments, the Grant Green record with Joe Henderson. That record is uh, still on top of my playlist. Um, the second horn in that case, well, I guess in a way that there's three voices, saxophone, guitar, and vibes. And I also learned, uh, I mean, Grant Green is hugely influential for me. Just the way um, those records sound, the records with Larry Young and the tunes that they played and the settings they played. I wish you love the way he presents that tune. That was a, a huge influence for me. And beautifully so, recorded. Beautifully. Um, well, it's all, you know, Rudy Van Gelder. Yeah. It's not just, I mean, it's, yeah. Terribly, and that was and that was a big influence. I have always been. Uh, um, maybe that's why I was. I was so drawn to uh, the aspect of production because I, I really I do have very meticulous. Uh, I didn't even realize this. I think until I was older. But the issue of sound. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I wanted to get a cassette player in my car, and. It just it kept you know warbling and I just drove crazy. I just I nobody else could tell, uh, but that that kind of stuff has always been uh, yeah. It's uh, the quality of the sound. That's you know in a way that's what took me so long to begin to appreciate older recordings because I just couldn't get past the the static and the uh, imperfections yeah. of the recording. Sure. That, that and thankfully a lot of recordings today are being remastered and, and some quite magnificently. 
so at least you can we can hear them digitally uh, yep. being remastered. And uh, well, Walt, it's it's been a you know a lot of fun uh, catching up with you and, and getting to know a little even all these years I've known you even more about you now and. Uh, uh, I'm so happy that you know you're still writing and touring and playing, and that you're not slowing down a bit. And of course, Steely Dan is back touring again, and uh, that's great news for everyone as well. Yes, and, it is. Uh, and uh, we we'll look forward to your uh, new projects. And and of course, throughout this video, we're showing uh, pictures of all your books and CDs. And um, and I just hope people will also check out your masterclass series because it's really quite something, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more. So thanks, man. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's really been just a real pleasure. Well, thank you too, Walt, and, and stay well, and uh, we'll hopefully um, have all the audience back for our next uh, video in the Woodwind Legacy series. Thank you. Thank you, Ed.